Good morning. This morning we are reading from Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. This is the final week. We're concluding the doctrines of peace. And we're, we've been looking for seven weeks at biblical wisdom, Christian guidance for resolving our personal conflicts. And for navigating this challenging age in which we live as Americans, this divisive, polarizing society. How do we live as Christians, as people of peace? What does that look like? And we've spent over about two months looking at this, and I love this passage. I love Romans chapter 12 with, with phrases like this. Listen to some of these phrases, because we're, we're not gonna unpack the entire passage today. But listen to these types of phrases in today's day and age. Hold fast to what is good. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Associate with the lowly. Practice hospitality. Never avenge yourselves. Overcome evil with good. Do you hear these types of things all the time in, in movies and, and on the internet and on people's bumper stickers? Like, I love this passage for all of those, all of those little statements. It kind of reminds me of a parent in an overbearing moment um, shouting out encouragements to their kid as they leave for the school bus or go away for summer camp, you know, like just everything you can possibly think of, throw it at them. Make sure you cover everything as they're walking out of the house, right? Be good, be kind, share, be respectful, work hard, don't embarrass me. Have fun storming the castle, all that stuff, right? So like, Paul throws the whole kitchen sink at the church in Rome. He's just prayerful and hopeful that they will act like Jesus in all of their relationships, right? He's, he's just praying for the best, but he's like, I'm going to throw everything at them. I'm going to make sure that they get all of it. And he just sprays them with every possible good thing. But what's, they're all related, though. Do you see that? When you look at this part of Romans chapter 12, they're all about their relationships with one another and their relationships with the non-Christian community around them. If you're a Christian, have you considered the fact that 
your approach to managing conflict in your life represents Jesus Christ? If you're not a Christian, have you considered that there is a better approach to conflict than what you're used to, than what you see and what's recommended and and probably what the people around you do and, and frankly, what you do, like kind of what you learn growing up from your family of origin, just there's a better way to approach conflict. I I had to discover that many times the hard way, and I'm, I'm still learning. The Bible, the Christian message, offers a better way. You know, I'm intrigued by the ubiquity of this, sorry, I'm, I'm intrigued by this phrase because it's everywhere today in our society, right? The statement, be kind, it's ubiquitous. It's just, you see it and hear it everywhere, right? Now, if be kind, whether you see it on a bumper sticker or it's, you know, it's stapled to a telephone pole or it's on a banner somewhere, whatever that is, when you see the phrase be kind, now if be kind, if what people mean by that is do unto others as you would have them do to you, you know, Jesus's golden rule, hey, that's great. I'm all for that. I think, though, I think some people, when they say or display the phrase, be kind, I think sometimes that implies a tone of arrogance and self-righteousness and maybe even bitterness. Sometimes the phrase, be kind, I think what people mean is grow up. When you see be kind, what some people mean by promoting that phrase is grow up. Try harder. You're not trying hard enough to be nice. Or, I figured out how to be kind. Why can't you? You know, for all the stickers and all the banners and all the social media posts, I I don't think our society is any kinder. The Bible acknowledges what is actually true, that being kind is extremely difficult most of the time. When being kind costs something, when you've been humiliated, when you've suffered a loss, when you've been mistreated, being kind is really difficult. Stickers are popular, demonstrations are popular, but pursuing peace, pursuing peace is actually essential. And today I wanna just focus on one verse in that entire wonderful passage Just this verse, if possible, the Apostle Paul wrote, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We're just going to look at that. We're going to talk about pursuing peace when it actually depends on you. And we're going to talk about pursuing peace when it actually depends upon them. And we're going to finally, ultimately talk about pursuing peace when it really depends upon God. Pursuing peace when it depends upon you, when it depends upon the other person, and when it depends upon God. Here we go. Pursuing peace above all exceptions and all excuses we can possibly make depends upon you, my friend. Pursuing peace depends upon you. I mean you personally. If you think, is he talking to me? Yes, I'm talking to you. Pursuing peace depends ultimately upon you. I want to look at this phrase, so far as it depends upon you. There's a really popular question 
Most people wonder it, and a lot of people ask it, and even some Christians disagree on what the actual answer is, but I'm sure this is going to sound familiar to you. Who is responsible for initiating reconciliation? Who is responsible for initiating the peaceful process in a conflict? Is it the offender or is it the offended? Right? Is it the person who's done the wrong or is it the person who has been wronged? Well, interestingly, Jesus said both. If you look at Mark chapter 11, and this echoes something Jesus said in Matthew 18, which we looked at several weeks ago. And by the way, if you want to catch up, just go to deeperinchurch.org, and all of these recordings are are up there um, on the sermons page. Jesus at one point had said, whenever you stand praying, so the, the, the concept there is worship, and you're being holy, and you're being religious, and you're being spiritually minded, When you're in that frame of mind, Jesus said, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So there Jesus says, the offended initiates the person, the people, the group who has been wronged initiates. If you're a victim, if you're an underdog, if you are an innocent bystander, you have a responsibility. Now, in a situation of abuse or oppression where there is an enormous power imbalance, yes, you have to be careful how you initiate. You don't just walk up to somebody who has been oppressing you for years and try and resolve the problem. Of course, there are wise, careful ways of doing this, but Jesus is saying, if you are the one who has been wronged, you still have responsibility. But often I've heard people say, and I've even said this to myself, well, they should come to me. They're the one who caused the problem. They should come to me. They know what they've done. I'm here. I'm waiting. But offenders instigators, oppressors, and bullies, you're not off the hook either. Because in another place, Jesus said the opposite, Matthew 5. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, see, the same context, the idea is of a faithful Jew worshiping in the synagogue or in the temple and being holy and being religious and all that stuff, right? Outward religion. But then Jesus goes inward. He said, think about your inward religion when you're worshiping God. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember what? That your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, in this instance, the offender initiates. The offender, the one who has done the wrong, initiates. But often I have thought, and you have heard, and maybe you have even thought, well, look, if they've got a problem with me, they need to come to me. Oh, I hear they have something, they don't like what I've said, or what, they know where I am, they know, they've got my number, they know how to find me. If they're upset with what I've said or done, they can come to me. Jesus says it works both ways. The phrase, so far as it depends on you, When Paul wrote that, 
He put the burden on everyone. The burden of action is on both the offender and the offended in resolving the conflict. Both sides mutually pursue one another. It's not that Jesus was contradicting himself. It's when you bring different passages of scripture together, you get the holistic picture. Paul is echoing Jesus when he writes, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul was saying to both sides in a conflict, it depends on you. Now, you would now logically think, well, when can I in good conscience stop trying to pursue the other person? That's a good question. Another way of saying it is, when can I finally stop trying to make it work? When can I finally stop trying to force a peaceful solution or a peaceful dynamic? When can I stop trying? Okay. Now, that's a legitimate question. We already know when Peter said to Jesus, this was a few weeks ago, when Peter said to Jesus, how many times should I forgive? When am I off the hook, right? Jesus said, you're never off the hook. You never stop forgiving people. This is a little different. What if you keep forgiving someone who just doesn't change? Or if you, what if you want to try and make peace with somebody who's not interested at all? Or maybe they're not even alive anymore and you can't make peace with them. Or they're so remotely removed from you in your life practically, th th there's no functional way to have a resolution, right? This is, this is practical stuff. When can you in good conscience stop pursuing another person or another group of people? Well. The answer is when it depends upon them. Let me, cloud, let me qualify that. When it finally and only depends upon them, you can relent. When it finally and only depends upon them, you can relent. There's, this is a famous question as well, and I'll rephrase it. When should you stop actively pursuing peace with another person. It's when you're finally convinced that you have done all that you are called to do in Scripture. Not all that you want to do, not all that you feel like doing, not all that your mom and your dad told you you should do. And that was Peter's problem. Not all the rabbis tell you to do and the priests and the pastors tell you to do, not what the politicians tell you to do not what your family heritage has taught you to do, all that scripture calls you to do. You have to ask yourself the following questions. And, and this really summarizes everything we've talked about in the last six weeks. Have all the biblical options been exhausted? Have I exhausted all that God calls me to do in his word? Have I been seeking to glorify him in this conflict? Am I honoring him or am I honoring myself or something worse? Have I attempted to remove any logs that are in my own eyesight and when those logs have revealed idols of my heart, have I attempted to repent of them? Am I actively repenting? Have I tried to restore the other person gently? Have I forgiven them? Or am I trying to forgive? I'm struggling, but at least I know I'm called to forgive and I'm wrestling with that. I'm having a hard time with it. And, and this is another big end, 
have I received any counseling, any accountability, any help necessary to do all of the above? Only then may you relent. Only then, when you've exhausted God's options, can you relent and then entrust the conflict and the person to God. That's when you, in good conscience, can say, Father, I've tried, I've tried everything. I've done all that you've told me to do. Nothing's happening. I entrust it to you, and I entrust that person to you. And then you must continue to forgive in your heart, as Jesus told Peter in Matthew 18. You must continue, even if nothing works after that, you must continue to forgive. My friend Ruth Ann Batstone, in her book about forgiveness, wrote, we can forgive before there is resolution. We can forgive when there is no resolution. We can forgive tons of things without saying anything because love, and she's quoting scripture here, love covers a multitude of sins. Even if things don't work out, even if we get to the end of our options and there's no peace or reconciliation, right, we, we still now in our hearts have to cultivate forgiveness. That was the last, the last sermon, forgiveness. We have to, because as I mentioned in my own life in, in, in the last episode recently, if we do not cultivate a forgiving heart, even after we've done all that we are responsible to do, we're going to get bitter. That bitterness, that unforgiveness will eat you alive. So the Christian can prioritize the pursuit of peace while leaving the results to God. Prioritize the pursuit of peace, but leave the results to God. It is true, we're Presbyterians. God is sovereign, and a sovereign God changes hearts. But he calls us to try. He calls us to try. I know that only God can change another person's heart, but he calls me to pursue them. Maybe I can convince them. Maybe I can change. I do all that I can. And when those options are exhausted, I leave it in the hands of a sovereign God who works, who works. But he calls me to try. You know, biblical peace is more than a ceasefire, right? When you say peace in the Middle East, or you think of, oh, I just, I really, you know, Russia and Ukraine, we need peace. Right? Or the warlords in Central Africa, we need peace. Or all the stuff that's happening in our society, left and right, we need peace. Right? What the world means by peace is the cessation of arguing. Right? The, I just want the bullets to stop flying. I just want the incendiary posts to stop flying through, uh, through the stratosphere. That's not biblical peace. The end of violence is not biblical peace. Biblical peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. That's its heritage. And shalom meant wholeness, flourishing, blessing, goodwill between people. Think of how everybody feels at Christmas time. All that good, you know, that warm, fuzzy goodwill that everybody, regardless of what they believe, kind of extends to one another for two weeks out of the year. Think of that times a million. That's shalom. Just that feeling of prosperity and oneness and, and wholeness and health. When Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek and all those blesseds in the Sermon on the Mount, that concept of flourishing, that's shalom. 
That's what the Bible means by peace. It's not just the end of the bloodshed and bitterness and hate. It, it, it means the presence of fullness. The presence of mutual goodwill. Christian peace is a lifestyle. It's not just an action. It's a lifestyle of pursuing shalom in our relationships. And you may relent, the Bible says, when you have exhausted the biblical options. Pursuing peace for the Christian is not optional. We, we don't have the option to say, I'm not making peace with that person. Now, we may not be able to, but we don't have the option to say, I just refuse to make peace. Making peace, pursuing reconciliation is not an elective that we get to take if we have some extra time in our schedule and need a few more credits to graduate life. For the Christian, it's not an elective. It, it is right there. It's part of the core curriculum that Jesus offers to his disciples. We do pursue many things and many good things as Christians. Think of, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian a long time and you've been in various churches, think of all the things different types of churches emphasize. Like some Christian traditions are strong in evangelism, right? If you're gonna worship with us, you're gonna learn how to save souls. Presbyterians, like we're all big on study and understanding and rationality and, and we prioritize catechizing our children in the West. Like this is great, right? Some, some churches... Uh, prioritize overseas missions. We prioritize so many different things in the eight years that we've existed. We've prioritized prayer. We've prioritized vision casting and leadership and planning and volunteering and discipleship and study and community groups. We prioritize so many important things as a church, and, and God's blessed it because we're here. Look at us. We're here today. But how many churches, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, how many churches do you know that you've been a part of that prioritize reconciliation? I don't mean saying it. I mean practicing it. I bet you you can't count them on one hand. How many churches have you been a part of that has prioritized the process of making peace with one another. Some of you would give me a big fat zero. So many churches rarely prioritize the joyful discipline of reconciliation because it's a discipline. It doesn't just happen like watching My Little Pony. Reconciliation is a discipline. It's being obedient to Jesus. So we really shouldn't wonder why Christians are as polarized as our neighbors in this day and age in America. Because we, from when we were young and discipled in youth group until this very moment, have never been taught or seen an emphasis on how to make peace with one another. That's why we're as polarized as everybody else. It's a discipleship issue. You've been trained in evangelism. You've been trained in the Westminster Confession of Faith. You've been trained in prayer. You know how to read Christianity today. You know where to find Gospel Coalition articles on, on the web. But the last four or five years, as the elders said, this is why we're doing this series, has revealed in not just all of us an inability to be people of peace. 
It must be our priority as followers of Jesus. Obviously, Paul thought that. Read Romans chapter 12. Be good. Don't embarrass me. (laughs) How can self-professing Christians not prioritize peace? When our Savior is known as the Prince of Peace. When Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He didn't say, if you get around to it, if you're retired now and you have time, start teaching Sunday school and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It just says to all Christians, make every effort to pursue peace with one another. This side of, listen, this side of eternity, people will always be sinners. The world will always be broken, which means conflict conflict will always be a fixture in our lives, in the world and right in the church. Conflict will always be with us. Being kind will always be difficult. So let's stop living in denial of that. Let's do all that we are able to do to pursue reconciliation with one another. Because pursuing peace is actually possible when it depends upon God. We can't leave him out of the equation. We've talked about what concerns you and what concerns the other person. Notice I didn't really tell you what the other other person needs to do because it doesn't matter what they need to do. It matters what you need to do. I tricked you there in the second point. But, But pursuing peace is possible when it actually depends on God. It depends on him always. Look how God handled our conflict with him We call it the gospel, the good news, in in, in case you don't know it. This is how God, this is the gospel, the good news. This is how God handled our conflict with him. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, earlier on in this letter, he said, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. It's kind of like an afterthought. It's kind of like a side comment he makes there. But what is he saying right there? I had to think about this. This is what Paul is saying. People rarely show the ultimate kindness to unworthy recipients of their kindness. In this world, people rarely give themselves up for even a great person. Being kind when it costs you is extremely rare. And what Paul is saying is people are almost never kind to people who don't deserve it. But, he said, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus exhausted all the options. And then he did the unimaginable thing. He died for the people who were unworthy. That's me. That's you. He exhausted all the options. And then in his kindness, he died for unworthy recipients of his forgiveness and grace. So to anyone who wrongly thinks that the other party, the other group 
has to make peace first? The gospel says, God didn't wait for you to make the first move. You never would have. He pursued you in peace. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, there's proof that you can forgive anyone in your heart, even if they never see you again, even if they're dead, even if they look you in the face and say, I did nothing wrong. Proof that you can forgive from your heart because while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He pursued you in peace. Now you pursue one another. We pursue one another in peace because that's the example Jesus set before us. That's the power he gave us as God's forgiven sons and daughters to pursue peace together. When both sides of the conflict realize that perfect peace, lasting peace, actually depended upon God and he delivered, when they know that perfect peace depends on God, then each side can pursue their own part and leave the results to God. That's the best scenario. That's why Paul's saying what he's saying. If, if I pursue my part in the conflict and you pursue your part in the conflict, but both of us leave it up to God, that's the best scenario. If you pursue peace and leave it up to God, it doesn't matter if they don't reciprocate. It doesn't even matter if they're not around anymore. Why? Because you have peace. You have the peace of God in you. And that will carry you through. And why do you have the peace of God in you? Because God's made peace with you. Turns out that the Bible was more than 2,000 years ahead of its time. When Paul said in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Being kind is possible after all. It's possible when the source of our kindness is a God who is love, a God who is just, and a God who is forgiving. So it's an unpopular thing, but it is a needed thing for Christians to actively pursue reconciliation. Let's actively pursue peace. And, and I thought it was just now, there are be, be kind stickers and t-shirts everywhere. When you see one, think of a conflict you're in, think of a person, and practice forgiveness from your heart. And in that moment, ask God, when you see that sticker, forget about what it means politically and socially. I'm not talking about that. But when you see those, those words in our society, be kind, transform it, baptize the statement, and ask yourself, Father, have I exhausted all your options in this conflict that is weighing me down? and then leave the results to him. Pray with me. Father, I think of uh, the, the book of James where he says that, that people who sow peace will reap peace. That people who sow in righteousness will, will reap a harvest, a harvest of reconciliation. And that's our desire as a church. 
And I pray that for my friends here, for their marriages, for their friendships, for their work relationships, and for the dynamics uh, between them and their children, or between them and their parents, or between them and their siblings. We pray that you would teach us, that you would teach us how to be like Jesus, our Savior, who died for us before we even cared about him, before we even knew him, when we would have crucified him ourselves. May that be not only the power to save us, but the power to save our dying relationships. Father, help us as a church sow seeds of reconciliation in this world and in Carroll County and in in our very own congregation. And we long for a day where we will see a harvest of righteousness from that. And even if we don't see it completely, we know we won't see it perfectly in this life. We look forward to when Jesus returns to make all things new. We can't wait to be revealed as the, the sons and daughters of our, the God that we love and, and co-laborers with, with the Prince of Peace. In his name, amen.